So today I'm going to consider the first of the seven principles of Unitarian Universalism as articulated at a General Assembly of our association in 1985. We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. It's kind of part of my elevator speech. I use it a lot. It's one of those things I flip off when people ask me what Unitarian Universalism is. The inherent worth and dignity of every person. Woohoo! Well, this first principle is a foundation, I think, for all the principles that follow. It is, in my estimation at least, a principle that actually exemplifies Unitarian Universalism. But its importance in our religious tradition does not mean that it is revered by all Unitarian Universalists. In fact, I have heard from several people uh, in the church I serve for whom this first principle is a concern, if not a major stumbling block. As one newcomer recently told me, Mark, she said, I don't know about this inherent worth and dignity stuff. What about sex offenders or murderers or Osama bin Laden? Do we have to affirm and promote their inherent worth and dignity? Because I don't think I can. And I don't remember exactly what I told her in response, but it was something along the lines of, well, you know, as a Unitarian Universalist, you don't have to affirm anything. These principles are merely a best attempt to articulate the things that most Unitarian Universalists believe. However, they are not a creed, and they shouldn't be viewed that way. But I'm sure I added on some sentences about why I think it is, in fact, an important part of our religious heritage. And today I'm going to try to share with you some of my understanding of that first principle and why it is actually essential to my religious perspective. But before I do that, let's get right to the inherent problem with it. To do this, I begin by sharing a scene from the movie Independence Day. It's been a while since that movie was out. You may recall it's about a global invasion of creatures from another world. In the beginning of the film, it's unclear whether these aliens who are arriving in enormous spaceships are friendly. One by one, their vehicles appear in the sky, hovering over buildings on all continents, just hovering without clear purpose or intent. And reactions of the world's citizens are mixed. Some respond with fear, sensing that the end of the world is at hand. Others are cautiously curious, willing to wait and see. And then there is one small segment of the population who embraces the arrival with an outpouring of love and celebration. These people who choose the path of welcoming the aliens are mockingly portrayed in the film as hippie religious types singing songs of hope and peace. In the scene I describe today, a gaggle of these folks are standing atop a skyscraper above which hovers one of the ominous spaceships. As the groovy peacemakers lift their arms in the air in joyful rejoicing, looking up at their spaceship, it zaps them with a green bolt and they get blasted into oblivion. <laughs> In the New York City theater where I saw the film, incidentally a full five years before the events of 9-11, the crowd responded to this scene with their own joyful rejoicing. The raucous applause and shouts of delight signaling to everyone present that the welcome wagon of trust got what it deserved. The lesson taught by the filmmakers and celebrated by the audience was clear. 
If we choose to be naive about the nature of the universe, particularly if we trust, uh, choose trust over suspicion or fear, we can expect to be destroyed. Now, I know it may seem odd to begin a consideration of our first principle with a story of how dangerous it can be to assume the inherent worth and dignity of each extraterrestrial. And yet, that is what our first principle can seem like at times, at least to those of us who can't help but wonder about the usefulness, if not the sanity, of such a principle in the face of the monstrous acts of evil that have been and no doubt will continue to be perpetrated by humans against each other, against our planet. Monstrous evil that is, at its core, no different than that expressed through the destruction brought by aliens in the movie Independence Day. Why should we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of a human whose behavior, we could agree, I think, is inhuman at best? What is there to affirm in an unrepentant mass murderer or a pedophile or a terrorist? Where was the inherent worth and dignity of Charles Roberts? Do you remember that name? been a while. Charles Roberts, a name that was broadcast nonstop for at least a week, uh, a while back, a couple years ago maybe even. Charles Roberts, the man who entered an Amish schoolhouse one morning, took ten girls hostage and shot them before ending his own life. What was inherently dignified or worthy of affirmation and promotion in Mr. Roberts as he meticulously planned and carried out a brutal and senseless attack? Not long after the murders, you may recall, we knew at least one answer to this question, an answer evident in the reaction to the slayings offered by the Amish community. Do you remember? They chose not only to forgive Mr. Roberts, but actually to reach out in support of his family. The Amish chose to respect the inherent worth and dignity of their seemingly alien invader because their faith perspective teaches that he, as a human, is a child of God and therefore worthy of compassion and deserving of forgiveness no matter how heinous his crimes. While this response of the Amish was largely heralded at the time as an extraordinary, extraordinary act of Christian self-sacrifice and love, instructive in its confident appeal to our better natures, some questioned its wisdom or at least wondered aloud about what the ramifications of such all-encompassing forgiveness and regard for someone so clearly undeserving. Aren't some crimes, and therefore some people, simply unforgivable? Don't some people, by their actions, effectively withdraw whatever inherent worth and dignity they might have had? And if we continue to affirm and promote their worth and dignity, aren't we being as naive as the obliterated love-in crowd? None of us want to be naive. We don't want to be duped. Clearly, Boston Globe columnist Jeff Jacoby doesn't. He wrote not long after the killings. I admire the Amish villagers' resolve to live up to their Christian ideals, even amid heartbreak. But how many of us would really want to live in a society in which no one gets angry when children are slaughtered? in which even the most horrific acts of cruelty were always and instantly forgiven. 
There is a time to love and a time to hate, Ecclesiastes teaches. If anything deserves to be hated, surely it is the pitiless murder of innocence. He continues, I cannot see how the world is made a better place by assuring someone who would do terrible things to others that he will be readily forgiven afterward, even if he shows no remorse. I wish the Amish well, but I would not want to be like them reacting to terrible crimes with dispassion and absolution. The murder of the Amish girls was a deeply hateful evil. There is nothing godly about pretending that it wasn't. Well, even as I emotionally understand Jacoby's perspective, I think that he has actually misunderstood something essential about forgiveness. He focused on the community's acts of forgiveness as though they were gifts being bestowed on the killer and his family when in reality, forgiveness, anytime we can muster it, is a gift that we bestow on ourselves. Our human capacity to forgive is, in fact, a vital component of what I would call our inherent worth and dignity. That anyone else benefits when we forgive is secondary, I think, to the benefit that we receive whenever we can bring ourselves to let go of those things that have been done to us and see ourselves as a bigger whole of humanity of which we are all merely a part. This is the same point that was made by the 20th century minister and theologian Howard Thurman. He suggested that when we begin with the premise that all life is one, that there is no ultimate detachment of any part of life from the whole, then we can no longer say, look what he or she or they are doing, but rather they, as a part of us, have done this to us. They, as a part of us, have done this to us. That can call for a pretty big leap for most of us, right? This seeing the capacity for evil as somehow an inherent component of us all, right alongside our worth and dignity. Furthermore, can any of us know for sure how we would feel if one of our loved ones were violated in such a vicious and senseless way as these Amish girls were? Would we be able to forgive our attacker, seeing him as a part of ourselves? Would we want to? I do feel quite certain that I would want to see some kind of justice, that I would want, need the attacker to feel some consequences of his actions. But granting forgiveness to him, it's hard to say if I could do that. For the Amish, devoted followers of the teachings of Jesus, the requirement of forgiveness is clear. Now, Unitarian Universalists, on the other hand, are not bound by Christian edicts, nor, it seems, are many Christians. (laughs) It's common for all of us who revere Jesus as a great teacher, even as we may ignore what he had to say or try to wrangle his teachings to our benefit. It's like a story that I heard once of, of a mom who was making pancakes for her sons, Joe and Eddie. The boys start to argue over who's going to get the first pancake. 
Mom, seeing an opportunity for a lesson in generosity, says to her older son, Joe, you know, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Joe then turns to his younger brother and says, okay, Eddie, you be Jesus. I also realize that our Unitarian Universalist first principle does not say that we covenant to forgive every person. Still, if we do affirm and promote each person's inherent worth and dignity, aren't we suggesting that each person is inherently worthy of forgiveness? And that we would be somehow betraying our religion, if not our inherent nature, to withhold forgiveness even in the most extreme of circumstances. Oh, come on. Come on, we might say. Yeah, some things are just simply unforgivable. And again, we come back to the inherent problem with inherent worth and dignity. Does everyone indeed have it? In a world where violence is rampant, Genocide is a reality where torture is being performed not just by freedom-hating foreign types, but by our own government. Our answers matter a lot. A while back, former UUA president Bill Schulz gave an address to UU ministers with the title, What Torture Has Taught Me. Schultz knows a lot about torture, not just because he served as president of our association, (laughs) but rather because he spent 12 years following his tenure as UUA president as the executive director of Amnesty International, a role that exposed him to a worldwide view of the ways in which human rights have been denied, especially through acts of torture. He says that when he began, he wanted to see the torturer as a monster, as something alien, when in reality he learned that a torturer is more typically a person not all that much unlike any one of us. Of course, there are some circumstances that lead someone to be able to torture. Typically, it's a person who has been conditioned into obedience by a restrictive and stressful environment and who is given reason to believe that he or his loved ones are being threatened by a vulnerable, though disrespected, category of people against whom the torturer now has the motive to take out his fear and aggression. Even if a torturer has been cajoled into the role, as Schulz contends, the question follows, how can a human with inherent worth and dignity be so easily led to deny others the same? And how can we justify our faith in inherent worth and dignity when we can be so easily converted into savages? Schulz says, I suspect we base our belief in the inherent worth of human beings on some vague notion that aliveness itself is good and some long outdated hierarchical assumption that because human beings represent the pinnacle of aliveness, we possess inherently some kind of merit. Well, He says, I don't buy that anymore. He explains how he has endlessly fought the death penalty, not because every one of the lives in question have inherent worth, but because we can't be sure which do and which don't. 
nor can we know in all cases who we can trust to decide. He goes on to express my belief, and probably some of yours, that the use of executions or torture by the state diminishes the dignity of every person in whose name it is enforced. But more precisely, he says, he has learned that he needs to, and this is important, he needs to assign the occupants of death row worth and dignity in order to preserve his own. He needs to assign inherent worth and dignity in order to preserve his own. For Schultz, whether or not this worth and dignity is inherent is beside the point. I appreciate the way he has reframed the principle of inherent worth and dignity for himself to read that he affirms and promotes the assignment of worth and dignity to every person, not on the basis of divinity or natural law, but by pragmatic consensus, consensus that must involve everyone in the global community or else our judgments, he says, would be only fit for a desert island upon which we ourselves are the only occupants. Our capacity and freedom to reach consensus with others to determine what is appropriate behavior is, in fact, for me, a foundational component of our inherent worth and dignity, at least as I conceive it. To me, affirming inherent worth and dignity does not excuse inhumane behavior. Rather, it challenges us to respond appropriately, acknowledging that there are consequences to our actions and our reactions, just as there are consequences whenever we demonize any part of humanity without considering how interconnected and interdependent we truly are. Affirming inherent worth and dignity, therefore, is not, in fact, a theological end point, but rather a starting place. A starting place in our understandings of who we are and who our sisters and brothers are. It accepts that we are all much closer to evil than we may want to acknowledge, and that even if we, and that if we deny human rights to any person or group, we are, in effect, diminishing ourselves. Doing my best to try to affirm and promote the inherent or assigned worth and dignity of my fellow humans, no matter how despicable their actions, is a way to honor the reality that there but for the grace of God or genetics or privilege or education or good timing or just plain dumb luck, go I. You know, ultimately, I don't think the first principle is really about other people at all. It's about ourselves. It's about we. It's about us. Who do we choose to be in the world? And how do we face the oftentimes, pain, oftentimes painful realities of what it means to be human without being more naive than we have to be, yes, but also without being so shielded or paralyzed by our suspicion or our fear that we limit our understanding of other people and in turn ourselves. In the Adrian Rich poem we shared in the readings today, she imagines the different life circumstances of her readers. And I appreciate 
her words, the ending in particular, because it seems to sum up the human experience, the yearning in each and every one of us. She writes, I know you are reading this poem, listening for something. Torn between bitterness and hope. Turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. I know you are reading this poem because there is nothing else left to read there where you have landed, stripped as you are. hear in her words the kind of humility, acknowledgement, understanding that is required if we are to live up to the inherent worth and dignity with which I believe each of us entered this world and the freedom to choose who we will be that goes with it. The freedom to choose who we will be as individuals, yes, but also the freedom to choose who we will be as religious communities, as a nation, as a global community of imperfect, unpredictable, and yes, sometimes evil humans. Humans with the capacity to do awful, awful things. but also great things. To forgive. To express compassion. To love. To endure despite all the reasons not to. And to work toward a better world where evil stands less of a chance and where human Worth and dignity is not just a quaint religious notion, but a way of life for us all. May it be so.